Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello there and welcome back to another episode of the Jedi Order podcast. Uh, today's a really fascinating one. We have special guest Dr. Stuart Clark joining us for the first part of a two-part interview. The second part I will air in a couple of weeks' time. But our guest, um, Dr. Stuart Clark, is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. He's written and published over a dozen books. He's an accomplished astrophysics journalist, writing for the likes of The Times, The Economist, and also The Guardian, where he covered one of the most famous NASA and ESA missions of recent times, the Rosetta mission, where they landed a ship on a moving comet. Most recently, though, Dr. Stuart Clark has hosted the series Beneath the Night on BBC Radio 3, which came out earlier this year, and he'll also be releasing his book by the same name in October. But as well as being one of the lead astrophysics authors and journalists in the UK, Dr. Stuart Clark is a massive Star Wars fan. Over the next two episodes, we get to chat everything from space travel, intelligent life within our own solar system, the ancient Egyptian studies of the stars, and also that very famous galaxy far, far away. So without further ado, here is the next episode of Jedi Order Podcast. Okay, I think I have uh, Dr. Stuart Clark on the phone right now. How's you it do going? indeed. Yeah. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? I'm good here. I'm very well, thank you. Uh, we come to everyone, thankfully, on another resurgence of the sunny weather that we're getting in Britain again, which is a nice little change after a few days of rain. I know. I walked into the office this morning feeling very, very good about the, uh, about the sunshine. It was, uh, it was lovely. So have you yourself, have you been still going uh, into your office regularly or did it stop for a while? It did stop for a while um, and I, I worked for, um, God, I, I can't remember now, I think, I mean, a couple of months. It seems seems crazy to say months about all of this. Um, but yeah, I worked for a couple of months from home uh, and uh, then uh, started to come back into the to the office um, just to get a bit of a change of scenery and because um, most other people were still working from home that I, I share with other freelance uh, creatives and uh, they were still working from home so I felt pretty pretty safe doing that and uh, as as lockdown keeps easing so we uh, sort of socially distance all the desks and we've got hand sanitizers everywhere and um disinfectant wipes everywhere so uh, we're sort of gradually adjusting to the new normal yeah it's very much uh, going to be the new normal the different things implied i was saying to someone the other day especially with the use of masks now which very much was something apparent more so i feel in asian culture especially like in china and japan wearing masks was a very normal thing when going traveling and outside on public transport for instance and now it's going to be more of a world thing so it's quite interesting to see those little changes which are going to be continuous i think throughout our life going forward 
Yes, you just sort of see things gradually become normalized. Uh, it was probably um, a week or two weeks ago that I walked through um, what had been just deserted Market Square on the way to the office. And I started noticing that there were more and more people around. And it's at that point that I suddenly thought, you know what, I feel more comfortable wearing a mask now and uh, so yeah so so i've converted to it yeah all, all of us who are worried about our, our our look in the fashion world we're very comfortable settling into our <laughs> new mask uh, look for the future <laughs> i did see online that there were a couple of star wars masks but i thought that might be a step too far yeah b- break that in maybe around <laughs> december time <laughs> Uh, well, it was it's great to talk to you because uh, we've uh, kind of connected through a mutual friend, Alex Mylas, and uh, people who know Alex is obviously I met him in the music industry. But since then, even though I know music is a massive passion of his, he's been able to follow that and going into space rocks and things like that. And with yourself, obviously, we are going to talk about Star Wars. But most recently, I'd be quite interested to hear on how. Uh, you've done a series beneath the night with BBC Radio 3 and how that came about because that was quite interesting to listen to because it more took rather it did explore obviously your knowledge within those that field but it was obviously more of like a diary format of memories that you happened to have uh, either growing up or as you got older. Yes, that's right. It was a it was an absolutely fascinating series to work on. Uh, the genesis of it is that uh, I've periodically been asked to contribute uh, episodes to Radio 3's essay series, which is their sort of late night 15 minute spoken word slot uh, in which you just um, sort of muse on a subject, um, really. And and that turned into from doing um episodes uh in other people's series a couple of years ago that turned into doing a whole series uh, all five episodes on the music of the spheres and uh i charted how astronomers and musicians had worked and and pinched each other's ideas um right from pythagoras up to around about the 1600s and johannes kepler and how they how they used the music theory to try to explain the night sky and sort of really try and use music theory as the first physical theory of everything as we think about it now and that uh, series went down um, really well thankfully and so I ended up uh, proposing another series and they went for it which was Beneath the Night and it came it springs out of research I was doing for a book that's being published in October by Faber which is just called uh, Beneath the Night and I wanted to chart the way in which um, humans have associated themselves with the night sky right from sort of 19,000 years ago and the cave paintings at Lascaux um, in France right up to the modern day and look at the way um, that association with the night sky has changed over the centuries and the millennia um, but is still um, a huge influence um, on us and of course a huge part of my life I never remember a time when I haven't been interested in the night sky and felt something absolutely primal and sort of uh, awesome 
while being under the night sky. So I dropped in um, little personal memories and moments of, of revelation and epiphany, if you like, um, that sort of illustrate or use them to then sort of illustrate wider wider points so it became a fascinating um research project uh, and i'm really really looking forward to seeing the uh, seeing the book come out actually yeah i mean fascinating is the right word because especially listening to that series in the previous series you also spoke about there there's so many well i mean we're privileged now to have such an expanded knowledge um being in a point where research has been going on for decades centuries and that's so we're obviously in the know-how a lot more about the night sky than we've ever been before and it was really interesting to hear certain um sections i remember you saying something about how they used to in early civilizations they found um what looked like uh, was it baboon bone or something which they used to tell time through the night sky? Yeah, the Ashango bone. That's right. It's um, it's super interesting because it is this. Yeah, it's this fossilized baboon bone, um, and it has these markings on it, which are pretty crude, and they it doesn't look like a piece of art, um, and yet it doesn't look random either. And a researcher called Alexander Marshak, who was a, a journalist, really, and who became super fascinated in trying to unwrap the mystery of what um, the Shango bone and certain other artifacts that he found in museums was all about. He wondered if what he was seeing was tally marks. So just, just someone counting something out or marking the, pa the passage of something. And he started to think that he could see in those numbers uh, references to the, the moon and the lunar month and the phases of the moon. And you know, this, is, this is the first um, principal use of the night sky was to tell the time. So the sun obviously marks the day and night cycle. And then the moon marks out the months, the phases of the moon uh, give us that uh, sort of basic monthly cycle. And then the year is marked out by the movement of the stars in the night sky. So these, these days, weeks, uh, well, these days, weeks, months and years, you know, that we take for granted today, all initially are linked to the movement of the objects um, up in the sky, particularly the night sky. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's extremely fascinating that that was something that even back then, all those centuries, thousands of years ago, was still something that they were, um, people living back then, were able to translate into reading time and using the night sky to their advantage. Because as you talk about um, loads of, obviously, events that had happened across the different centuries have been depicted in different ways when seeing witnessing like supernovas and things that um the humans could see from the night sky hundreds of years ago but not knowing how to interpret it i mean we live in a, a day and age where like i was saying before there's common knowledge of these things happening and these things will be reported on um it's quite when did it really become a thing uh, do you think that it was more of a common knowledge in terms of our solar system, things like supernovas happening across the world? Because obviously it was pioneered by a few people and a, a number of people were, you know, put in prison for all their kind of theories because it went against religion. But obviously, eventually now we know it to be science and know it to be true. 
yeah this is a super fascinating sort of evolving story and i think one of the first uh, things that people noticed were the coincidences as it were so the stars change with the seasons and so somehow it starts to become well well is the is the universe the wider universe around us some sort of mirror of what's going on on the earth we have this phrase um, even now for the the hottest days of summer we call them the dog days of summer it's not so widely used anymore um, but that derives from ancient egypt and the brightest star in the night sky is called sirius and it's in the constellation uh, of Canis Major, which is the great dog. And Sirius is often called the dog star. And it just happened by coincidence that this brightest star in the sky would rise in the summer, roughly coincident with the hottest days of the summer um, in Egypt, ancient Egypt. And so the idea that they came up with was, well, it's clear that the sun is hot. You know, it's what gives us the day um, when Sirius adds its intensity as well. And um, that's when we get the dog days of summer. And it's trying to make these connections and seeing these coincidences um, that's, that really started this idea of, of links to the night sky. Now, that changes somewhat when you start to get to the 16th century and you start to consider um, not just the coincidences but what's the, the causal reason um, for these things to happen and of course we people like Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler they start to realize that the earth is actually in orbit around the sun and that the the axis of the earth its rotation axis is inclined it's not straight up as it were it's at a 23 degree angle and as we move in this changing orientation around the sun so that gives us the seasons and because we're in a different part of space or looking into a different part of space that's what gives the change of the constellations as well so it's not the change of the constellations and the stars in the night sky that cause the seasons but it's the movement of the earth that causes the change in the night sky and the seasons and that's really it's in that watershed um, and certainly by around 1700 everything changes and we have the scientific revolution and the enlightenment and it it starts to become super knowledge based and the collection of data just starts to increase on this sort of exponential curve and now we're in this era today of these as a big data and just almost being able to collect more data uh, than we can analyze yeah it's uh, we're in such a privileged privileged position today um, with all the information that we're able to obtain and it's interesting you touched there um, especially on ancient Egyptians I feel certain civilizations um, ancient Egyptians being one were more fascinated by the not the night sky and the sky during the day in general uh, would they uh, do you know uh, were they a civilization civilization that kind of um explored that theory more i know they had like sun gods and the night gods mm -hmm. and that all went along there but they definitely seem to be looking up a lot more than uh, many more civilizations of their time 
Yes, and this is this is a, a one of, again one of the fascinating things. I mean, I say that word a lot, but it is it's just super fascinating to me. And the the Egyptians had a whole um, sort of pantheon of gods to help um, understand nature and what the natural world did. So we can see in these um, pantheistic um, religions. Uh, early attempts, if you like, at science, if you define science as trying to explain the natural world around you. You know, so they had the sky goddess, Nut, and Nut had the, the, the stars painted on her torso, and she would swallow Ra, the sun god, um, at sunset. And Ra, in his great solar barge, would would travel through her body during the night, which was why it was dark. And Nut would give birth to Ra in the dawn sky in the morning, and Ra would begin his journey back across uh, the daytime sky again. So everything uh, was 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 explained in ways and in contexts that these ancient civilizations felt comfortable with. And this was the, the translation of the feelings that they had when looking at the night sky. Now, because we're very used to um, technology and robotics and spacecraft and things like that, we transform those feelings of awe and wonder into um, sort of visions of technology and traveling into um, the night sky. So in many ways, our connection to the wider universe is the strongest that it has ever been in human history. We're no longer human beings who look up at the night sky and think of it as a distant, unreachable realm of gods. Instead, we see it as, as, a, as, as an extension of the physical world and a place that we can see through the eyes of spacecraft and robots and through the instrumental data that gets sent back so we can understand the physical reality of the universe around us. And because it's a physical place, we can imagine ourselves traveling through it and being in it. And that's why science fiction films are so popular with us they speak to the same part of us um, that would once have looked up from ancient rome seen the night sky and seen a realm of, of gods and the dead yeah for sure and the, it's kind of the the fascination now especially i mean i know we've gone through uh, different decades of fascination with the night sky with space and with exploration especially with the modern day space race uh, back in the 50s into the 60s and 70s but now very much in the 2000s it's coming to its own again um with the mars rover and something that i know you uh, i think covered for the guardian which was the rosetta mission mm. um, and you said you couldn't believe kind of not just the fascination from the people who were working on the rosetta mission but the public during the time you were covering that their kind of renewed um watching the exploration again of the night sky you were quite taken aback by what happened then i i was completely taken aback by it um and 
so with the caveat that we've uh, supposedly got the the human moon landings coming up in you know a number of years time a few years time uh, there was definitely a time when i thought i would never cover something as popular as the rosetta landing and it it did completely take me by surprise so I'd been doing a lot of work for the European Space Agency um, over the years. And one of the things that I was really, really pleased about was um, when they started to take very seriously the idea of, 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 of involving the public in the Rosetta mission. And in the sense of involving the public, what I sort of mean is not being modest and downplaying what was happening but just being super open uh, with the public and saying, look, this is really tough, but, you know, we, we're going to give it a go. We're going to try and land on, this, on, on, on this, this comet, which has a gravity that's so weak um, that if you were to just take a little jump, uh, if there were a person standing on the comet and they just jumped a little bit in the air, um, they'd reach escape velocity. Uh, and we're going to try and land on it, which means touching down, grabbing it, anchoring ourselves. And then we're going to do this amazing science, part of which will look at the formation of the solar system, how our planet came together, and even try and look and see um, if we've got uh, the ingredients that could have become life on the early Earth, on the, the, the chemical ingredients that could have become the, the early life on Earth. And so... Uh, I asked ESA if I could do a live report um, on the day they woke the spacecraft up for the Guardian. And this would involve sort of essentially being like an embedded journalist, being there very close to the control room, talking with everyone during the whole day. It was a big, long seven-hour process that was going to take place uh, and just report on it and use the Guardian's live blogging tool, um, which had been developed uh, uh, for sports events mainly, and just see how it went. And the Guardian were up for it. ESA uh, was up for it. And, and that proved to be really popular. And the idea that something as simple as this spacecraft waking up, it had been in hibernation for three years because it had been so far in the solar system that it couldn't generate enough power through its solar panels. So they, uh, so they had designed this hibernation mode and that then the spacecraft was going to wake itself up. This wasn't a signal that was sent to Earth to say activate because the spacecraft was, was essentially turned off, just the tiniest little bit of, of electricity being used for a clock essentially an alarm clock that was counting down and at this particular time it would say to the spacecraft wake up and the spacecraft would start to warm itself up it would start to look out into uh, the universe with its little star tracker eyes work out where it was it was spinning to keep it stable and it had to stop itself from spinning then take its orientation, then point itself back to Earth, find where Earth was in the night sky, and then send the signal back saying, I'm awake, what would you like me to do? And the simplicity of that message, and the fact that we had a little bit of drama in that the signal was about 15 minutes late coming back, um, and so everyone was very, very tense. Uh, and 
everyone understood and we could communicate this to the general public watching it was all done on live feed was that all you needed to see was this this flat green line suddenly develop a, a peak in the line and if that peak arrived and was steady rosetta was alive and talking to the earth it was just so simple and of course it all happened it was an amazing amazing moment to witness and that set the scene really for then going back at the different milestones for the mission and doing all of this the same and then i live blogged for something like three or four days i think it was around the time of the landing and there were triumphs, there was some uh, problems in that the spacecraft didn't anchor itself quite well enough, um, but it was still in communication so it could still do some of its, or a lot actually, of its some science cycles and that. But we didn't really know where it was on the surface and it's this race against time to try and get all the science back before the batteries died. Um, and literally there were millions of people reading these live blogs um, every day for uh, you know three or four days and when I got back to the office at the Guardian you know these are journalists that have been there seen it done it they have seen absolutely everything but uh, the first time I was back in the office you know they were saying to me what was it like to actually be there and I thought wow this really has been um, something extraordinary it's it's so interesting because it really at that moment for sure i mean it was kind of a new moon landing to a certain extent the the fascination and interest and it was something that had obviously never been done before and something you touch on there which i think now um the way nasa and ESA obviously approached that leading to where we are now the openness of involving the public was i think the 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 keyest thing and the most important thing especially now when you look at the most recent um spacex mission uh collaboration with nasa from kennedy space center launching and i was i i had that live stream i must have had it on for <laughs> nearly two days <laughs> yeah yeah i know. You know watching everything unfold and and at every single point, there's always on the variation. SpaceX had it live stream. People were doing live blogs about it. NASA had it live stream. There was always hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people watching at any given moment, which is just it, it's so great to be a part of, even as a someone watching. Absolutely, and this is my key contention: is that the the internet and our modern technology, the amazing cameras that we have now on spacecraft. So you can actually watch from the from the launch pad, you know, all the way up into orbit, the the live stream coming back from the from from the rocket, the openness with which we communicate about these highly ambitious, difficult space missions, you know, and the problem solving that goes on along the way. I mean, the the evening of the landing of Rosetta, where something uh, had clearly not gone quite right and that the Philae lander um, had not anchored and so had bounced across the surface of the comet. And suddenly, you know, it, it took several hours for these people to analyze the telemetry, but they'd got a scenario about what had happened about how it had bounced 
two or three times and it clipped obviously the 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 the, the peak of a little um hill or something on the comet and that had, as it was as it was bouncing back over the surface and that had set the spacecraft rotating which you can see in the data and how you piece together the the story of what is happening on this comet you know millions of miles away and the way we connect to it and way we connected to it you're absolutely right about it being an apollo moment um, and the most fascinating thing about that is that there were no humans on the mission but we were absolutely connected um, to that little rover in what felt like a very human way I very much feel uh, someone needs to give Ron Howard a call and ask him to uh, <laughs> just uh, create a version that we can watch in the cinema so we can actually be there with the spaceship, humans or no humans on board. Uh, it's still just as tense, like you said. Yes, these the spacecraft now, they are our, they're our, our electronic avatars. You know, they are the ones that are showing us close up um, what it's like to be on Mars, to be out among the moons of Saturn or to, you know, anywhere that uh, that that you want to think of. We can now, you know, we can now go to soon the um, the European Space Agency's solar orbiter mission will be coming online. It's just finishing its commission um, as as we're speaking, really. Uh, and that is going to show the most amazing images from the sun and look up at the poles of the sun, places we've never, ever seen um, before. And every time a spacecraft does this and sends these images back, so we feel more connected to the universe and in a strange way, more connected to the future, I think, um, of humankind and more connected sort of even to these scientific, uh, so these science fiction visions that we have about that future. That's one of the most uh, interesting things, especially the technological uh, technological advancements over the past few decades. And like someone with yourself who's obviously got more of a knowledge and understanding of what the space exploration missions now mean um, from a technological standpoint than the common person, we get these questions that come up, which are always, you know, the more the bigger questions where I know that people at NASA and ESA are obviously working on the smaller questions to lead to those bigger questions first. But where do you kind of feel, especially due to the advancements that say have happened in the past 30, 40 years, where do you see us reaching a point um, making it? I know this depends on so many variables, but making it possible to for humans to be living on another planet, not in the terms of huge amounts of colonies, but just living comfortably like on Mars and exploring a planet such as that. I think it's still there's, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, but. I think that for the very first time, we are really engaged in moving in that direction. And the key to it is to just find ways of creating uh, an economic sphere in space. So a way for companies um, to make profit from space. And for a lot of the space race, uh, or you know, since the the fifties the and the sixties, you know that was not space was seen as a very pure place to be, a place of pure exploration, and um, nobody owns it and things like that. 
and there is there is a part of me that utterly believes in that that in to as much as possible to make space a sort of commons that is a, uh, somewhere that is not subject to, to sovereign land grabs and just uh, all that petty geopolitics, what petty, all that geopolitics that goes on on the earth. But there's also a pragmatic side of me that, that realizes that, that governments have an awful lot um, of things and interests to juggle. And so, as we saw with the Apollo missions, once once a political or a governmental uh, objective is met, in that you get people, America gets people on the moon before Russia, then the the focus turns somewhere else. So, what we need is some sustaining interest to keep um, people going into space, and technology has improved so much that it's now within the realms that that private companies can develop missions to take people into space and so the next step is to find some way of developing a commercial ecosystem in space and that will drive um, the exploration dreams that that we all have uh, and in um, in terms of what I think that future might look like um, I think the television series The Expanse does it really, really well. I mean, I know there's a lot of drama and Mars and Earth are always almost at war with each other in there. But just in terms of what that early colonization phase of the solar system looks like, yeah, I think The Expanse gets it pretty much spot on. It's interesting what you say also there about the private companies, which I don't think to uh, the common person has been something that they've thought about until this recent SpaceX mission. But that I feel that's where, uh, as you said as well, I think we're going to sometimes may end up relying on those private companies more so due to the involvement of governments and politics that can make projects like ESA and NASA kind of have to take step backs in certain situations because of you know questions all the way down to funding and what they do and where they go and why they should be doing it and all those questions that I know politicians and governments will ask but we are obviously very fortunate now with SpaceX I think Boeing are also uh, launching their first spaceship I don't know if it's this year or next year. But, they had uh, a test launch last year, actually, this, uh, and and it didn't go too well for Boeing. So um, they've got some uh, they've got some some issues to fix on their on their on their spacecraft. But I, th they'll make it definitely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's 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 so interesting because we obviously there's this always been this uh, the fascination of space because it's and then also the vastness of it when you know people throw around those numbers on like trillions of galaxies and billions of stars um and the fact that i think it's an I, I believe it's the most common theory that are the inflation theory of our universe that it's uh it's like internal inflation theory that it's continually expanding i believe that's the most common theory is where we stand at this point isn't it yeah so we know um, because we can measure it, um, that we uh, that we, we live in an expanding universe, and so if it if if it's expanding, that means it was smaller in the past, and that's how this idea of the Big Bang has developed. This sort of and the Big Bang essentially just sort of means a moment of formation 
um, of of the universe. And then when people specifically talk about inflation, um, that's a hypothesis that takes place um, very soon after the Big Bang that hopefully solves some of the observational problems that we see in the universe around us and, and we find difficult to explain. Um, but inflation is, is, is definitely a widespread idea. Um, it's being questioned because no one can really find um, a, a, a driving mechanism uh, for inflation. So what set it going? What suddenly caused the universe to, to, to inflate um, hugely, a sudden exponential expansion that lasted for a split second and then we began this more steady, sedate expansion that we see um, today. So I would say that inflation um, is up for grabs, but the the expanding universe itself um, is observationally proven. Yeah. And what is the, what, I, know, I know there's, there's obviously, I'm going to just ask questions about a lot of uh, things that fascinate, I think, a lot of general people that don't know the ins and outs in it. And we just hear kind of the taglines thrown around with them. But there's, there seems to be, uh, especially in science fiction films, and when you ask people about their common knowledge of space, there's always been this massive interest in black holes and their kind of purpose or where they came from. So what, what kind of role does a or do black holes play in the universe and, and where how 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 do they come about? Black holes get all the attention. Yeah, um, because and so so I I sort of joke with people and it's, it's only um, well I'm only semi joking actually uh, every time we can't understand something in the universe sooner or later someone will propose a hypothesis that involves a black hole it's just it's they're like the they're a bit like the silver bullets yeah. um, but they're I mean they're really interesting and the reason they get so much attention is because we can't understand them and the reason we can't understand them is uh, they're a prediction of Einstein's general theory of relativity you can solve the Einstein field equations um, and show that you can have these places um, in the space-time continuum. This is the sort of the invisible framework of the universe. And we don't really know what that is beyond it's like a mathematical um, coordinate system in general relativity in which everything takes place. And it's malleable. And this is where we have the idea of space warps and time warps. Um, it's because the space-time continuum can be uh, can be. Uh, sort of manipulated like a rubber sheet and warped into different configurations by the presence of mass or energy. And one of those warps can be so extreme that you create a black hole, which has a gravitational field that's so large, nothing can escape from it if it crosses the boundary into the black hole. And that boundary is called the event horizon. Now, the really interesting thing is that when you have extremely large amounts of mass in very dense regions, those can collapse into black holes. Um, you can also, when you run the equations back in time to try and see what the, what the Big Bang was, you eventually come to a point called a singularity, which is also what we think exists at the center of a black hole. 
And so in black holes and at the moment of the Big Bang, you have this mathematical entity called a singularity. And our laws of physics don't work in and around those singularities. So everyone concentrates on them and trying to find the next theory of gravity, the one beyond Einstein that will allow us to understand black holes. Because if we can understand them, we can probably understand the moment of the Big Bang and the formation of the universe as well. So it's like the, it's like the area to look. That's the unknown area of the universe in which you look in order to try and find any observational or phenomenological hints that you can of, of phenomena that you can then understand with new laws of physics. It's, it's so fascinating because it all obviously which is understandable comes back or related to the big bang and i know that i mean we can see i believe now is it we can see back to through light we can see back to the when the big bang happened to a certain extent um but is there isn't there another form of now um measurement which is to do with is it dust or gravity that is another way of kind of, uh, I believe somebody won the Nobel Prize for this particular thesis, which I think Einstein brought up at some point, but he didn't quite know how to measure it. Or is that something that we yeah. can do now? Yeah. So, so you're thinking of gravitational waves. So yeah. gravitational waves are, are ripples, if you like, um, in the space-time continuum. They are minuscule. They are, you know, oh gosh, I forget the the actual figure. Let's just say millions, but it's more than that. Millions of times smaller um, than atoms. Many millions of times smaller than atoms. These wow. little ripples. That is tiny. <laughs> yeah, and so Einstein sort of worked out these uh, that you would get these gravitational waves when you had accelerating objects, but thought they would be too small. Um, to ever measure and in fact this was another live blog that I did for the Guardian was I live blogged the announcement of the gravitational waves um, discovery I think that was 2015 so we could within a hundred years of Einstein uh, predicting the gravitational waves we've now got uh, equipment sensitive enough to measure it and the reason it's important for the Big Bang is because in principle there should be a gravitational wave background in the universe that's that that's happening even even now i mean you know it's the space-time continuum is still rippling you know within you within me within everything because the space-time continuum is everywhere it's still rippling with the the leftover jitter of this big bang from 14 billion years ago uh and th that gets us back you know, to within a tiny minuscule fraction of a second of the Big Bang. If we can ever detect those primordial gravitational waves, then we'll be effectively able to see the moment of the, the Big Bang and the formation of the universe. Light itself, we can only get back to about 300,000 years um, after the Big Bang. So we can get back to 300,000 years um, uh, but we can't see any further back from that. And what what's the main thing that by this new way of measuring the Big Bang and it, the beginnings of it and the, 
it happening what are we really hoping to learn having this new tool that now exists today yeah the gravitational waves themselves are are they're effectively a new sense if you like so everything that we've looked at in the universe uh, up until now most of it has been just collecting radiation um, visible light and then we extended out infrared ultraviolet um, then down in microwaves radio waves up into um, gamma rays and x-rays and so that's like our vision we can now look at the universe and and see that we also have particle detectors that uh, can detect uh, particles coming from space subatomic particles mainly the gravitational waves some people say is a bit like being able to hear the universe because it, it's it's ripples in the space-time continuum a bit like um, sound is wave motions in the in the air and so we can sort of listen in to um, collisions and explosions and accelerating objects if we can do that with the primordial gravitational waves, then that will tell us how matter is moving um, on mass at the moment of creation. Uh, I shouldn't use the word creation because that has overtones at the moment <laughs> of formation um, of the universe. And and once you've got motion and you can start see the way things that are moving effectively then you can start thinking about the forces that are going on behind um, that and what's causing that motion. So in a, in a sort of crude sense, that's what, um, that's what we would like to be able to do. It's, it always, um, it just amazes me in terms of, and it's also extremely interesting and it's amazing how we approach it. Our study of the universe at the same time, we're trying to understand, obviously, that everything that happened before and led to all the things that exist now. But we are also trying to still understand uh, our solar system, which uh, obviously I'm sure creates loads of questions all the time. Um, one factor I always am always most interested in, and you were saying about the recent uh, mission, which is going to produce brilliant photos of this, is obviously our sun. And kind of there's loads of I don't know too much myself. I haven't looked into this, but what is kind of the initial future of our sun? Because I hear I've heard before that is it always kind of ever expanding uh, in our solar system? And that's that's the point of what it does. It will continually expand until it, you know, implodes within itself. Yeah. So the sun itself will expand but not for several billion years yet. Um, it starts expanding once it's used up the hydrogen as fuel at, the, at, at its center, and it starts to burn hydrogen in shells around the core, and, and, and then it starts expanding and becomes a red giant star. Um, that won't happen uh, for billions of years. Um, the sun is comfortably on its main sequence at the moment. Uh, and there's a, a very gradual change of, of brightness and luminosity that happens. But uh, I don't think that's 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 even measurable um, on the timescales that we're talking about uh, at the at the moment. Um, so, but there are interesting things that do happen on the sun. 
and and that is that these this solar activity and the sunspot cycle and that's an 11 year cycle that goes from few sunspots to many sunspots and they appear at different latitudes so higher latitudes when there are fewer sunspots and down more towards the equator of the sun when there are more sunspots and those sunspots are are markers of um, magnetic um, fields on the sun and those magnetic fields um, they can periodically sort of collapse or change their configurations and in doing that they release energy and create the space weather as uh, as it gets called and the space weather when it arrives at earth which is in the form of, of energetic particles being released and energetic radiation being released when the particles arrive at earth they can interact with the magnetic field and the atmosphere of the Earth and create the aurora, for example. Uh, but they can also um, damage electronic systems in satellites and sometimes they can damage electronic systems on the ground in, in what's, what's effectively a natural um, EMP, an electromagnetic pulse. Uh, so Solar Orbiter, for example, will be doing the fundamental science to try and understand the way the space weather propagates from the sun um, out into the solar system uh, to affect, potentially affect Earth and the other planets. Hi guys, Ben here, and that is the end of part one of my interview with Dr. Stuart Clark. There's going to be a part two in two weeks, and we will get into even more interesting discussions about the stars and the night sky, and we will obviously do great deep dive into a galaxy far, far away as well. So tune in in two weeks, part two of my interview with Dr. Stuart Clark. Hi guys, I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening to another episode of Jedi Order Podcast. Please don't forget to like, comment and subscribe and may the force be with you. Uh-huh.